first off, I think we, I think everyone around this table will go on record and agree and say the United Methodist Church is not a perfect church. <laughs> I think we we would all say. Let well, me I, think about that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, <laughs> I thought about it for a minute. You thought about it, John Stevens, and this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Well, today we have Ted Campbell, who is the Albert C. Outler Professor of Wesley Studies. And wow. Ted, tell us a little about, a bit about yourself and your family and where you are and what you're doing right now so people know who you are. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you all today and uh, to talk about these kind of tough issues that we're facing. I'm from Beaumont, Texas. I grew up in a little Methodist church there called Memorial United Methodist Church, and I had a conversion experience in January of 1970 in my uh, sophomore year in high school, uh, sort of rededicated myself and eventually felt a calling to ordain ministry as a result of that. I did some studies in Texas, East Texas, and uh, University of North Texas, went to Oxford University for a while to study theology, came back to SMU and wrote a dissertation on John Wesley. And I basically spent my career teaching about the history of Methodism, John Wesley, and uh, kind of ecumenical approaches to Christian doctrine and Christian practices. So that's some of who I am. I have a, a, a armband and it says my motto, tradidi enim vobis, and that means I handed on to y'all. That's what it says in the Greek of the New Testament. I handed First on to y'all. I like that. That's awesome. to four. It's plural, not singular. So it's I handed on to y'all what I also received. That's my job. I'm a mm. hander on of tradition, of history, of doctrine, that sort of thing. Thing. That's Beautiful. so good. Beautiful. Uh, family, growing up. I'm uh, very happily married to Dale, who is from the great city of Houston, Texas. Uh, and if you're from Beaumont, that's marrying up, man. Uh, and uh, she grew up at Westbury United Methodist Church there. And oh, yeah. uh, we have two daughters, Elizabeth, who lives in the Woodlands, and mm -hmm. Lydia, who is here in Dallas. That's great. So you are a professor of Wesley Studies, a hander off of hander off to you all. But um, when you teach classes, like, is it history? Is it theology? I mean, for people who may not know what a professor of Wesley Studies actually yeah. does. Yes, I teach um, the basic courses that we have in history of Christianity one and two. We we sort of have number one goes like the end of the New Testament period all the way to the 1300s. Part two goes from the 1300s to yesterday afternoon. I laughingly tell my students, we really go to about World War II, uh, telling the history of Christianity, but we deal with the ecumenical movement in the 20th century. Then I teach our basic course on United Methodist history. Sometimes I teach our required course for United Methodist students on United Methodist doctrine. And every now and then I get to teach uh, a little seminar course on advanced Wesley studies um, and different topics like that. That's awesome. What's your favorite thing to teach? You know, honestly, my favorite thing to teach is not only United Methodist history, that's the basic thing I do, but I enjoy teaching early church history, uh, worship in the early church, religious experience in the early church, how structures for our church organization developed and so forth. That's yeah. awesome. Well, you know, we were talking about right before we came on that for people who pay attention at all. We've talked some about United Methodist things on this podcast. We always find there's like 
couple of college students who will check in and say, well, I really like your podcast, but my least favorite are when you talk about the denominational stuff. So go figure. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, some big news, like, so we record these on Tuesday afternoon. And today, as you said, your phone's been blowing up. My phone's been blowing up. Um, We've been waiting on a judicial council ruling. For people who don't know, the United Methodist Church is organized like the United States of America. Mm -hmm. We have an executive branch, which are the bishops, legislative branch, which is the general conference, and a judicial branch, which is our judicial council, like Supreme Court. And the question has been, can an annual conference choose as a whole to disaffiliate, leave, and join a new denomination? And the Judicial Council has come out today, and I've read through it. It's pretty definitive that, I mean, it, it doesn't, I kind of thought, I was afraid that they would come out and say, well, you no, you can't, but there might be some ambiguity or some muddy, you know, muddied water mm-hmm. in it. I don't think there's that in here at all, do you? Have you read it? No, it doesn't look like it to me. It okay. looks like this is a very clear decision that says that the, the problem we faced, and this is what makes it really tough, is that our Book of Discipline has no procedure for an annual conference leaving. It does have for an, a local church leaving now, but has no, no provision for an annual conference leaving. But on the other hand, it has no provision explicitly ruling that out. So the tough decision that the Judicial Council had to make was, you know, what do you do if you don't have a law against it and you don't have a law allowing it? And their decision, as you say, is very definitive. It's that an annual conference cannot, uh, as a conference, withdraw from the denomination uh, until the general conference has made some kind of provision. And that's especially frustrating because of COVID and so many other things. It's been so long since we've had, since we've been able to have a general conference meeting. Well, and I, and I do understand the frustration for some people who've wanted to leave the United Methodist Church, the fact that the general conference has been delayed, and especially with it being delayed again this year to 2024, I think there's a lot of frustration. And I think that led to a lot of energy around getting churches to disaffiliate they they started up or i guess flipped the switch for the global methodist church to turn on and to become an, an actual official denomination so yeah, I mean, first, I, first day of this month yeah and right. so so i it, i get where that comes from but one of the things that's fascinating to you and i think will be more more interesting than the polity weeds you and i have talked a few times and you refer you said something that resonated with me about the connectionalism within hmm. United Methodism or within Methodism, within Wesleyanism. Yes. Yes. And you you made a reference, and we didn't really explore it on the phone call a couple weeks back, about how it's tied into our theology. Hmm. And there was a line in yeah. this question one, and I want you to help us, because I think this is going to be helpful for people who don't really, maybe don't even really know what it means to be a Wesleyan Christian. But there's a line on this first question about connectionalism. And they say this, they say, more than simply a word in the shared vocabulary of United Methodist Christians around the world, connectionalism is the universal thread out of which the temporal and spiritual fabric of the church is providentially woven, creating the relational ligaments that wonderfully link and sustain the diverse parts of the community of all true believers under the Lordship of Christ. By the way, that's my next tattoo. I'm just going to get that (laughs) tattooed on my body. I think that's beautiful. But that, I I remember... I want to see see that one. (laughs) You got it. Actually, maybe I don't want to see that. 
I remember when that when I first read that first paragraph, yeah. I just hearkened me back to, to the things you were saying and trying to figure out. Talk to me about when mm-hmm. when you when you say that connectionalism is uniquely a part of our not just our polity, how we're organized, but our theology, mm-hmm. our identity as Wesleyans. What do you, how do you see that? Yeah, it's been part of the DNA of Methodism since the very beginning. John Wesley talked about Methodism as a connection in the British spelling, it's C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N. But he meant that Methodists were people who were connected together in a number of different ways. They understood that they shared specific doctrines and teachings, not just as individuals, but as communities. They were linked together in specific ways as communities, and we have functioned together. So if you if you back up and you look at the whole range of Christian denominations, there are some that are very, very independent, where congregations are virtually independent from each other, like Churches of Christ, um, Baptists, though they have some larger structures. You can move on to um, Lutherans with synods, Presbyterians with uh, presbyteries. Um, You'd have Anglicans with general conventions and Methodists with general conferences. But we've really functioned together uh, as a church. And that's part of what it means to be Methodist, not just in doctrine, which we have, but also uh, in forms of worship, uh, we have we ask our candidates, "Will you keep the liturgy of the United Methodist Church?" And it's traditionally it's been I'll show you a kind of a holy thing for Methodists, but it's been the hymnal uh, yes. that's kind of held us together. Now, what we've faced, and I think it, it it reflects that reaction that you're getting to people who say the thing I don't like about it is when they start talking about denominations. Our United States culture has made a very well-documented move away from collaborative structures towards individual and highly localized cultures. So it's working against us as United Methodists. People say, why should I have to use the hymnal uh, if I can buy music from some other source? Well, for us, it was our way of being together. Why should I use the Methodist forms of worship? Uh, Well, because that's how we're together. John Wesley gave us services, and we have an article of religion that says customs and worship don't need to be the same everywhere in the world, thank goodness. But it's the church, meaning the denomination, that establishes our forms of worship. And if anyone does not follow it, they should be publicly reprimanded, believe it or not. Uh, That's what it says if they don't follow. So we've leaned on the side of being a strongly connected church. That's part of the crisis that we're facing now is that it's contrary to the big stream in American culture. Robert Putnam has a book called Bowling Alone. It's written way back in 2000. And I think everything he said has come true about the the shift from my parents' generation, the greatest generation, the the depression and World War II generation, where people just had to work together to the time in which we live now, in which people say, I'll just make my own decisions. Each congregation can make their own decision. That's really not the way Methodists have focused in the past and from the inheritance of how to be a Christian that we got from John Wesley. So as, as we see some of the things that are going on now, like I know there are, there are multiple, what I would call Wesleyan or Methodist denominations. Hmm. I mean, you have United Methodists. We we were united back in the '60s with the brethren, and 
and we've split and come back together. You have Free Methodists, um, you have mm-hmm. Wesleyan Church, uh, right. and now you have this this new global Methodist. But it seems like to me, from what I feel and sense, and again, this is just my feeling, is that mm-hmm. we have moved so far away from what you're talking about. Like, for example, mm-hmm. the big negative um, moniker placed on me and other people who have been trying to keep the United Methodist Church together, even in our diversity on some of the theological issues, is that I'm an institutionalist. Okay, good. <laughs> and and that, 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 that's, not, that's not a popular thing to be these days at no. all. We had, a, we had an editorial about this in the Dallas Morning News by one of our theologians, uh, who's the director of our Houston Galveston program, Dr. Dallas Jingles. And, and Dallas was saying, you're not going to like this if you're not an institutionalist. But he was talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the yeah. Christian martyr of World War II, and how much, how passionately he believed that we need to act together as Christians, because he could see it in the face of Nazism and what was going on in Europe and throughout the world at that time. Uh, he could see Christians, it wouldn't do just to sit there in your own living room or to sit there in your own congregation and do something People needed to work together to show their solidarity with each other. And uh, frankly, he said, we need institutions. So this is what I face in my church history courses. I'm teaching about the 1640s, and I say there were all these wild, crazy new groups coming up during the period of the English English Revolution, including the English Civil War in the 1640s. And... Every one of them failed. Every one of them ceased to exist. We've never heard from them except one group, and they were called Quakers. And the Quakers developed quarterly meetings, weekly meetings, annual meetings. They developed Latin systematic theology. They developed structures. And I can see my students groaning and saying, no, no, please. (laughs) And I say, but look. All the other groups cease to exist. So, so structures are what enable you to pass the faith on. I hand on to y'all what I have received through generations, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, doing your own thing is your own thing. It's for you in your time period, that little box right there. But if you want to be something that's sustained over time, over generations, you got to put together structures to do that. So think about some of the big mega churches that just crumble almost overnight after their senior pastor, founding pastor dies or retires or something like that, like the Robert Schuller Crystal Cathedral in California, now a Catholic uh, uh, cathedral. Yeah. There's, there's a moral for you. I think what you see is some of those mega churches are surviving, and guess what? They look an awful lot like what we would call mainline churches rather than what they looked like 30 years ago because they put in place structures that enable you to hand on the faith and be connected across generations. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes great sense. The question I would have is then when, first off, I think, we, I think everyone around this table will go on record and agree and say, the United Methodist Church is not a perfect church. <laughs> I think we, we would all say it. Let We're me not... think about that. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I thought about it for a minute. You yeah. thought about it. It took you like t- two seconds. It's not a perfect church, but I have always Certainly. believed that, you know, we try to work together, even in our differences and that unity coming together. Yeah. And it's a slow slog in a process. Yeah. But to me, it's like the mm-hmm. same thing in, in our country. You know, our country is not exactly working 
all that oh, great wow. either. But we don't just abandon it or split off from it. We keep rolling our here, sleeves here. up in our differences and we, we keep trying to hammer it out the right. best that we can. Yeah. And I'm wondering that, <clears throat> I guess the question is, and I don't know the answer, I don't assume to know the answer, but this move and desire to get out of the United Methodist Church by some, I, I, it has become a very theological thing around uh, human sexuality, but it also seems to me to be a, an institutional cultural thing. I hear a lot from people, we want to get out from under the bloated bureaucracy yeah, is, yeah. A, is a big part of it as well. Yeah. You know, I think there's some truth to that. I have to agree. Um, I, I, the other day I put my 1972 United Methodist Book of Resolutions right next to the current Book of Resolution. It's mm. about like this. It's like we had wow. fewer things on which we agreed strongly. And now our way of solving a lot of problems, it seems like, is to create new agencies or create new resolutions and vote them in by a 50% plus one majority. And that's not a very strong statement, right? No. That doesn't say much to the world outside. If, you, if Methodists agree on something 66% or 75%, then that's a strong statement, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I agree with, with the the observation that we have become a kind of bloated bureaucracy. Now, the folks I know in the bureaucracy are absolutely wonderful people. I mean, I, I remember being in a van and, and we were on one of these terrible meetings where we had to investigate a United Methodist school that was having problems and we were going to have to make a judgment about this. But a woman got on the van from our our. Uh, our hotel and she said oh she said you must be Christians can you say a prayer for me and we said yes what what is it she said I've got to go see my son I've got a call he's been in an accident he's been mm. injured every hand in that van except the driver immediately on this woman and uh, praying for her and and talking to her and supporting her that's just the way Methodists uh, operate. And these are people who are in the church bureaucracy. I mean, you might not think of them like that, but since I've kind of been there, um, I, I see it like that. And that's, yeah. that's not a bad thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's a powerful statement. Now, you know, I, I think I told you before, I, I don't, our, our goal here is not to like be overtly negative or critical of one or the other, because I could, we could sit here all day and be pretty critical and negative of our own denomination. But when if if you look at what is now this new global Methodist Church, at least from what you've seen, and you look at the current existing United Methodist Church, from your lens of understanding Wesleyan theology and the history, and you look at both of the churches now, what would be your uh, constructive criticism to each one? Mm. And I think okay. that's a fair that's way good. to do yeah. it, rather than to just point yeah. to one or the other, because I think yeah. both yeah. of both of us need to hear. You know, everybody talks about how we got to get back to Wesley. I don't even know yeah. what, what yeah. that means. I mean, yeah. I'm not I'm not going to get up and ride on horseback reading it. You know, four thirty in the morning and pray for three hours and <laughs> eighteen or, charges. Or what, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so. But I think as you look at the two, you you know about both. You're steeped in both. Mm. You've read this stuff. Mm. What is it about them that you look at and go, okay, at, from a Wesleyan perspective, here are the constructive criticism that I would have for each. Yeah. 
Well, I, j I just got through saying that some structures help you survive through generations. Other structures, like I would say revivals, lay witness missions, walk to Emmaus, th those kinds of things that we've done, and, and many of them we've done well, are things that uh, sort of help you immediately in your current situation in the church. I kind of see uh, an unfortunate division here. I think the folks in the Global Methodist Church are going to be more revivalistic, less institutional, less connectional. That, that seems to be the general theme developing. I think the folks in the continuing UMC are going to be more progressive on social issues. Um, I think we're going to hold to our traditional theology. We're going to hold to our uh, traditional ways of worship. So this is one of my issues. Um, you know, I, I'm probably going to stick with the continuing United Methodist Church because I'm a traditionalist. I'm a traditionalist in worship. It's not that I don't like new songs. I really do. It's just that I don't want to lay down the forms of liturgy that we've received from our ancestors and through the long Christian tradition. That forms me as a, as a person. Uh, so even some of the names, what's liberal, what's conservative, and so forth, don't quite fit right in our situation. I want to say one thing, though, uh, John, and I, I've not addressed this before. Yeah. I really do think we should have this provision we've had since 2019 to allow congregations at least to leave the denomination fairly easily. Yeah. Um, we've said in the past, oh, it's a great thing we have this uh, uh, trust clause that kept congregations in the denomination because if they left, they'd lose their property. Well, that's not a very good reason for being in a denomination just that's because right. you're going to lose your property and i think it's it's very sensible and long overdue for us to uh, to to allow congregations to become separate mm. um but that's what i see about the the dividing ethos and my fear is that we're all going to lose in it my hope is that we all gain that we are all more confident in our way of being christian and methodist and calling people to christ but uh, my fear is that we all may lose some things along the way. That sometimes happens in divisions. Well, yeah, I think in divisions you do lose things for sure. Did you have a question? I, I just think that's a great observation. I was thinking um, that if, as we divide, there are those kinds of essence of both worship or, um, or, or structure that I, we're, we're more rich when we're together on those things, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so there's something about the division. John's talked about this last couple, couple of months in terms of the root word of, of, of the devil being Diabolus, meaning the divider, that which divides mm. us, yep. Yep. separates us. And mm. so there's something that even in our, um, our inability to connect over social issues, there's something about the unity and the connectionalism that's super important, I think, for this time. So I, I, thanks for raising that. Yeah, it really is. And and I will say I'm grieving over this division because um, you don't want to see the body of Christ rent asunder. We, we want to be Christ's body and Christ's body needs, needs to be together. We need to be uniting rather than dividing. But I also say nobody's innocent in this. You, you said earlier, John, uh, it's not a perfect church. Well, Who's responsible for the division in the United Methodist Church? Ted Campbell is. That's that for one. That I think each one of us bears some responsibility for this, and I feel a, a great sense of penitence and needing to call on 
God's mercy for us uh, as we divide and try to live uh, better as Christians. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I would be, I would join you in saying that when we think about the dysfunction or in the dysfunctions in the denomination, we all share in that. And I, it kind of frustrates me when the people who are leaving saying, we're trying to get out of the dysfunction. I'm like, look, we all contributed to this, including those yeah. of you who are leaving. You know, we, right. we didn't play well together. We struggled. I, you know, to me, it feels like that there's a lot of cultural influence into this as mm. well that has mm. seeped in yes. on both yeah. the conservative and progressive side of this thing. And mm. um, we just don't have that capacity to sit down and be able to, to tolerate or to be compatible around differing ways of reading Scripture or different ways of coming down on certain uh, issues that the Bible <clears throat> wasn't really overly clear about. And, mm. and that leads to uh, another thing that you and I have talked about and I think it's it's fascinating for me, and I think it is for you too. And that's this uh, getting past the judicial council decision and UMC stuff mm-hmm. is this understanding of 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 what it means to be compatible, mm-hmm. or, yeah. or in this issue, especially around human sexuality, marriage, and ordination, is that we have differences. We have some people that are defined as more mm-hmm. traditional in their understanding of human sexuality, marriage between a man and a woman. They read the Bible. That's what they see. It's hard for them to see any other way. Mm-hmm. You have more mm-hmm. progressive people who read the Scripture and say, mm-hmm. hey, the Scripture opens up to new revelation and allowances for God to work in fresh new expressions. And as long as we keep these these things like celibacy and singleness and fidelity yeah. and marriage and marriages, that connection between Christ and the church... And so we have this, but what happens is when we disagree on that issue, there are some people within the church that are on the traditional side or progressive side that are defined as, look, I'm not compatible on this. If you don't agree with me or if the church does something that I don't agree with, I have to go. I can't stay. Mm -hmm. And then there's this huge, I think it's actually a big middle of conservative, more progressive, traditional, more progressive people who are finding themselves to be compatibilists and are struggling with that. And the false dilemma for traditionalist people that's been presented is that some people say, well, if you're traditionalist on the issue of human sexuality, you cannot stay in the United Methodist Church. Well, I don't agree with that because I'm Mm. traditional in my understanding of of that as well. But I'm also a traditional compatibilist, as I've shared before, on divorce and remarriage. The Bible's pretty clear on that. Actually, way more clear on that than same-sex marriage ordination. And you and I have talked a little bit about this, because I love picking your brain about this. But this seems to be an area where, like, when you read books around this issue of, of human sexuality or marriage or ordination that Christian authors have put forth, it seems to come a lot from a progressive perspective rather than mm-hmm. from a traditional perspective. And I don't know, yeah. I thought we might just spend some time talking about um, what this means, because I think there's a lot of people in the United Methodist Church who are traditional. I think that's the vast majority of people, sure. especially in yeah. the Southeast and South Central, more traditional. But I think they mm-hmm. are compatible, they just don't know what that means. And yeah. they're not sure if that means that they're um, not being as faithful as they should be, uh, or you know, they're being confronted with this, and they're being told, you can't. You have to go in this direction if you're going to be traditionalist. Yes. Yeah. I've got a student who just turned in a paper to me in the last week. He's a very interesting guy. And what he's really proposing is a book. He's got a book proposal and two chapters that he is ri- written. That's what you're supposed to send to a, an editor these days. But he's millennial. And he just doesn't see either side or any of the sides in this debate as, as helpful to him. He's a... 
he's a 12-step person, right? He's been formed in 12-step groups. And he says they have an understanding of acceptance that's that's a critical tool for yes. how they work together. And so it's an interesting approach. He's He's writing a book about the United Methodist Church and its divisions now, and it's called don't leave. <laughs> that's basic. That's very straightforward what he's trying to say. But he, he he's not saying conservatives should leave and liberals should stay. And so he's wanting a church that's got liberal people and conservative people and in-between people and, and people who just don't fit the mold, which is what I find most people are, actually, yeah, that, yeah, that they're right. liberal on some issues and conservative <laughs> on others and, and so forth. And he's got a really interesting point of view. He thinks all of us who are trying to divide up the sides and so forth are mostly baby boomers who uh, are playing our own political games. And he's saying, you're, you're hurting our generation by uh, these kinds of uh, divisions in the church. Now, there's no getting around it. This is a big divide in American society. Partly it has to do with how you read our Confession of Faith as United Methodists and our Articles of Religion. Both of those critical foundational documents say the scriptures contain everything necessary for salvation. And that's very common language from the time of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it means that the scriptures, I'm going to say it like this, don't fail. They are infallible when they speak about what's necessary for our salvation. They do not err. They are inerrant when they teach about our salvation. But what this statement doesn't say, and what most other older Protestant churches don't say, is that the scriptures are authoritative in all matters of history and science and technology and medicine. That's where we tend to have the critical differences. Um, and, and I, I, I held to the very traditionalist position on same-sex relationships for a long, long time. It's been proximity to gay and lesbian people that helped me to see that in many ways, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a matter of choice for them. This is not right. a decision that they made. So when Paul describes uh, behaviors as being wicked because people have turned away from a natural order. He's not talking about my friends and my students and colleagues who are, are gay today. He's talking about something else. But this is kind of a scientific and medical matter as I see it. Um, I had a heart surgery last summer. It worked very well for atrial fibrillation. I'm very glad about it. Good. I was hoping that my surgeon was reading things like the New England Journal of Medicine and not what the book of Deuteronomy says about medicine. Um, <laughs> whatever he was reading, it worked. Okay, so I, <laughs> I like it. And uh, prayers were answered and so forth. But that's part of the problem. I, as a historian, I've documented that we said nothing about homosexuality until 1972. It was not until 1984 that we began to make restrictions against gay people being married or gay people, actually that was later, against gay people being ordained in 1984 and then 1988. So it's a it's really a new issue. Some people say this this ought to be seen as parallel to the Methodist division over slavery. I don't think so, because John Wesley was 
absolutely clear about yeah. Methodist position yeah. on enslavement. Yeah. Method, enslave, slave owners were not allowed to be Methodist, but the denomination uh, consistently uh, compromised on that set of issues. But when it came to the division, Methodists had a longstanding tradition of how to talk about that. We have not had that sort of tradition of talking about it on these sexuality issues. And I think that's part of what makes it so difficult. But John, I appreciate the work that you're doing, trying to lay out a more conservative uh, but compatibilist way of being United Methodist, because I think that's much needed. I just heard last week that one of the leaders of one of the conservative groups within the United Methodist Church has decided to stay in the continuing United Methodist Church and not go to the um, uh, global Methodist Church. I was delighted to hear that. I don't want to be in a church that's just liberal people. I want to be in a church yeah. that's, that's got Amen. that wide range that compatibility uh, allows. Yeah, you and I talked about that. That was, I, I think, early on, both of us, we, we were talking about, it's like, hey, I, I I don't really want to go with the GMC, but I have concerns about remaining in the UMC. Mm -hmm. yep. You know, that if it's going to only become, uh, we talked about this a week or two ago, there's a difference between unity and uniformity. And yep. uniformity is oneness rooted around we all have to think alike on the issue. And I think unity is oneness rooted in God's understanding of oneness that comes out of the beginning of Genesis and everything else. And that is our deep connection to God ourself to one another That's and right. to the creation and that unity is there it exists and whether or not we choose to live into it i think is why mm -hmm. jesus put mm -hmm. it as such a central hallmark of his mm -hmm. farewell discourse yeah. and his prayer was unity mm -hmm. yeah. and it I, i've heard people you know when when you start talking about that they'll say oh well, you're turning unity into an idol and i say you know unity mm -hmm is not what we're worshiping. Unity is the outflow of the God that we worship. Well, wouldn't you also say, and this is where I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer at least kind of lights on this, it's, he basically says, when you walk away from the communion table, that's what sin is. When you kind of mm. take your toys and say, I'm going home, yeah. I know what's right, right? And mm. so it's the walking away that's the sin. And so this idea that there, in our connectionalism, if we can stay together, we can continue to work out our faith with fear and trembling. And as a person that is more progressive on this um, uh, matters of, of human sexuality, I want to be in a place <laughs> where that uh, there is a, a cacophony of voices and positions that we're working out together, right? Yeah. I mean, it would yeah. be horrible if it was... if. If you showed up at a church and everyone ha held exactly the same position, I think that there's a type of spiritual like um, delay um, developmentally when that happens. If we all have to, be, there's something rich about us holding different positions, but coming to the same God and saying, I lay these things down. Uh, let's work this. Let's continue to work this out. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, I'm with you. Was it Wesley that was the one, so I, I always get mixed up, you know, like the quadrilateral or lateral and everything else, whether it was yeah. Outler or Wesley or someone else, but mm -hmm. in, in the, the, in the essentials, uh, unity yeah. and the non-essentials, liberty or tolerance, it's, and in all things, charity, charity or love, was that Wesley or was that some <sighs> variation of Wesley? You know, we, we can't document that John Wesley himself ever said that, but it was certainly a Wesleyan sentiment. The, the first documented instance of it is in 1618 in Europe, when Europe began to be shredded by denominational wars. And, and I mean, 
Christians killing Christians in the name of Christ because they differed about forms of worship and doctrine and so forth. Absolutely horrendous. And then a famous Moravian bishop, uh, Jan Amos Comenius, said that same thing, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And then it was quoted by Pope uh, Paul II uh, hmm. in one of his letters uh, coming out from uh, after Vatican II and about the reform of the Catholic Church. So it's a it's got a long honored heritage, and I think it's Wesleyan if it doesn't come from John Wesley himself. Yeah, I I think that's the one of the the big questions is you know are, are what are essentials. And I think, yeah. like you said, when you're talking about the scriptures contain all things necessary for salvation is a, is a baseline for us yes. as it relates to salvation. Yes. And so these other issues, yes. we, have to, we have to say, are these necessary for salvation? And if they're mm. not, then do they fall into the non-essential camp? Yes. Um, but and go ahead. Let, let me say one thing about that, uh, John. One of the things I'm kind of hoping for is that in a in a different kind of United Methodist Church, which it's going to be inevitably, I think. I think some of those decisions may be made at a national level or even a regional level, uh, rather than one size fits all as we've yeah. been trying and, and failing to live into. So, I, I mean, there are some African United Methodists. There are United Methodists in former Soviet countries who take very traditional views and I think it's going to make it difficult for them if we try to make that um, uh, something that's for everyone. So the, if the United States becomes a separate, you know, what we call a central conference, I think that would be the good place to locate some of these mm -hmm. uh, more divisive issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember um, Bishop Yambasu before he died in 2019 when I was working with a group on that Indianapolis, that first kind of go around mm -hmm. before the protocol yeah. on... What does it look like for an amicable separation? And he sent me an email, and I remember clearly that he said, you know, that um, in, it, there will be a split and that the United Methodist Church will have the, the centrist and the progressives w in, in America will remain in the United Methodist Church. He said that there will be traditionalists in America who will yes. remain in the United Methodist Church. And he said that the African Methodists would remain United Methodists, and they would remain traditionalist. Mm -hmm. And I think he was prophetic in, in a lot of ways. You know, he was the one that helped put the protocol together. And yep. even in 2019, before the protocol was finalized and put together, this is where he saw the future of the church growing, uh, going. And so he saw the United Methodist Church in America containing people who were more traditional in their understanding on these issues and people who are more progressive. And he saw the African church remaining. And it always surprises That's me when I, when I talk to some people and I say, I think the African United Methodist Church is going to remain in the United Methodist Church. And they laugh at me like, mm. and maybe that's not the case. I don't know. But I just remember um, those words of his before he was tragically killed in a car accident. <clears throat> and it made me think that even, here's Bishop Yambasu, who's a bishop in Africa, very conservative, traditional, and he understands the contextual sort of variation in the United States of America, and he's someone who's saying, I'm going to remain in that church, even though in Africa, our, the way we understand and, and practice human sexuality is going to be traditional. 
There's not going to be a variance for that. And I think he understood the cultural, contextual differences uh, as well. And so... That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just... I, I, I still have his email in my in my inbox, wow. and I go back and look at it from time to time, and just to remember hmm. um, his 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 broader view on this than a lot of people were bringing to the table because people were coming to the table talking about how do we divide it, and here he was coming to the table saying, "Let's think about ways we keep it together hmm. in its diversity." And you I know, always thought I, that was good. As a historian, I kept wondering, how are we ever going to make one step forward? And until he said that, uh, and I think you're, and it was late 2019 or 2020 when all this came, came to pass, I couldn't see anything happening. I think when we tell the story, if we say, where is God working? We're going to talk about him and we're going to talk about a Jewish attorney from New York who believed it was a mitzvah, a divine <laughs> opportunity to help his neighbors, the United Methodists, to find a way uh, to move forward with this. And that'll be a fascinating story to tell. Mm-hmm. But we can't tell it yet. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, if what, what would be your, your word to people who are if you if you were going to put on your preacher hat now or your encouragement right. your encouragement hat and yes. you were speaking to people who are more traditional in their united methodists and they're wondering like how do i stay in this and and it and, and or do i need to leave and just what 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 good word do you give to them to help them process through all this and kind of just understand better where they are and how that all fits in what we're facing You know, a lot of United Methodists have never had the grace-filled opportunity to read our articles of religion, our confession of faith, our historic creeds, and to to experience the the gorgeous depth of spirituality in our hymnal, uh, our liturgies. uh, And I would say that's where I would send folks. Look at our liturgies, uh, see how we praise Jesus, see how we carry on and hand on Christian tradition. Look at our doctrines. Our doctrines might convince you that you really do need to go to another church, and that's that's fine. But if you haven't had the chance, I'm going to exhort you, sisters and brothers, as the, the old language used to say, I'm going to exhort you to look at our articles, our confession of faith, our uh, beautiful liturgies that give praise to Christ, and, uh, and and let that soak into your soul. Yeah. Well, that's a good word. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> I, I've, I think it's interesting right now, or I guess some of the irony is that there's uh, so much push to go and join a new denomination that mm. for all intents and purposes right now is mm-hmm. the exact same the denomination same. as the United Methodist Church. Yeah, very close. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, if you look at the, the, um, the Book of Doctrines and Disciplines for the Global Methodist Church, I always tell people, oh, I really like it. I mean, because it's <laughs> right. it's almost cut yes. and pasted. It's cut and pasted from yes. the United Methodists. One of the things yes. that they miss, that they leave out, that I think is interesting. And before we go, I'd like your I'd like your thought on this because this is something that sort of jumped up to me um, a couple of well, a while back. But when you go to look at the things that they've taken to put into their global book of discipline, they have. The, doc, the doctrinal standards, they have the 
um, articles of religion. They have all, if you go down like paragraph by paragraph by paragraph, they have all of these things. But one thing they did not include that we have in our book of discipline, and I'm trying to pull up here where I sent that back, is the the paragraph um, 105, I think it's 105, and it is the um, theological task. So they have... They have yeah. one, they 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 took 102 which is our doctrinal heritage. They yes. took 103 doctrinal history. They took 104 yes. the doctrinal standards and general rules, but they did not take 105 our theological task. And yeah. 105 paragraph it says, the theological task, though related to the church's doctrinal expressions, serves a different function. Our doctrinal affirmations assist us in the discernment of Christian truth in an ever-changing context. Our theological task includes the testing, renewal, elaboration, and application of the doctrinal perspectives as we carry out our calling, quote, to spread scriptural holiness over these lands. And they go on to say our our theological task is critical and constructive, individual and communal, Mm. contextual and incarnational, essentially practical. And the point is, if you have doctrine without the theological task, without allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us to test, renew, elaborate, and apply, then do we not in some ways become exactly what Wesley feared, which would be a dead sect having the form of religion without the power of the religion? What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's it's a remarkable thing. When we adopted that statement of our theological task in 1972, it passed by an enormous majority of the General Conference. In fact, Albert Outler had chaired the Doctrinal Study Commission that led up to that. And he told me this kind of funny story that they intended that it was going to be a new doctrinal statement alongside the Confession of Faith and the Articles of Faith, the the Articles of Religion. And at the last minute, the Judicial Council decided that no, it's just going to be simple legislation that can be changed by 50%. When the vote finally came, uh, it was uh, like almost a thousand delegates and there were 13 votes, as I recall, against it, everything else in favor of it. And he said, the secretary of the general conference gave him the ballots and he said he went through and he could identify who people were (laughs) and about six people objected to it because they thought it was too conservative and seven objected to it because they thought it was too liberal even among those you know who who didn't support it there was they were kind of evenly divided so it's a remarkable statement but but that judicial council decision ends up being very wise for us because it says we're not changing our articles of religion. We're not changing our confession of faith that we received from the EUB church. But yes, we can, with a 50% majority, we can change that statement uh, about theological tests, which we did in 1988 at the General Conference. So it gives us flexibility. And I think, as you suggest, John, that means flexibility to follow the Holy Spirit when we did it in 1988, it was from a kind of conservative direction because there was a sense that the statement of our theological task was too wimpy and, and sort of allowed for anything goes. 
And uh, we needed to say that Scripture has the primary place among the elements of the United Methodist Quadrilateral. And I think that was a good move. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that that was a responsible statement and still very helpful for trying to figure out some of the new issues that we have to, to face. I think that's one of the things that makes us very uniquely Methodist Wesleyan is we're not like, uh, my brother is a Southern Baptist preacher yeah. and they have a, you know, the Baptist faith and message, which is a book of the beliefs and the doctrines. And there's, that's just what they are. Right. And you have to go by them or not. And there's not this, this whole move in here of there's a theological task that we have to engage the doctrine or the doctrine as mm. it's expressed in real life. And that's mm. the hard part for us because we're, we're, we're doing that together and we're not yeah. of all of one mind when we begin to do that work. Mm. Yeah. But I think that's yeah. a beautiful thing for us to continue to, um, to do together. Um, you know, I think that's what makes life beautiful is that you don't always agree. Mm. I mean, even in my family, we don't always agree. I'm with you. <laughs> you, you know, you had said something that your student uh, had written a paper. I'd love to read that at some point, but uh, as a 12-stepper um, that he's coming at, at this in, in a way, there's a phrase in the 12 steps that says, live and let live, which, yeah. is, um, which yeah. is this kind of idea that says at the very center of what we're after um, um, is sobriety. There's a lot of things you're going to come into mm-hmm. this that are not about keeping you sober that can really distract you. When we had Bishop, was it Gray? on um, a couple of weeks ago, he had said, really, our task is, um, is to um, share Jesus with a, with a world that is um, lost, uh, to feed the hungry, to all the stuff that really kind of makes me Methodist, wants to make Mm. me Methodist. Mm. And it seems that this, at some level, and then your, your, your insight that it wasn't until the eighties, this is a relatively, and the human history, this is a new thing. Why would we split over something we're still not quite sure about right so there's a sense in which we need to live and let live and hold on to what we have always held on to as methodists and see um over time what uh what the spirit reveals yeah i i agree i think it's 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 moving fast uh, and i know folks want to move fast and uh some folks want to make that one issue the line in the sand but i think we've got the line in the sand and the apostles creed and the nicene creed and the Articles of Religion and the Confession of Faith draw that line in the sand. And I'm perfectly satisfied with that and stand by it. And we continue to grapple with all yeah. kinds of new issues, uh, not not just the sexuality issues, but I'm frankly glad most of the time somebody else is grappling with that because they're they're tough enough for me to, to, to try to get my mind around. Well, and there's going to be more issues. I mean, there's going to be something else. There's going else. to be more issues. You there's going to be something it. else. This is seemed to this this one issue seems to take up all of the oxygen in the room. But now, if you pay attention to current news and current events, you know we have abortion back on the front yep. Uh, yep. burner. We have all sorts of other things that it may or may not introduce back into society. And so, you know, <clears throat> there's always going to be something we're going to be wrestling with, that we're going to be struggling with as we integrate our faith into daily living mm-hmm. in our world. And I would rather do that with someone like Matt Russell and with you and people that only, I, I may not see everything eye to eye, but I'd rather do it in that kind of yeah. loving community around unity that's rooted in the oneness that God 
has Amen. created us to live in, as hard as that is sometimes. But hey, so SMU. Hey. <laughs> that's a beautiful campus. Go ponies. I know. And you're all are actually, the football team is better now. The basketball yeah. team is good now. They're winning games and stuff. I, mean, I know. Cool. It's actually <laughs> exciting. I used to think it was just a bunch of what rich kids with the. Uh, with you know horrible sports, but man, they're 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 in it now, and now that you can actually legally yeah. pay players, I mean, you know, yeah. you guys are just back ahead in, of your back time. In the 80s, we had we had the best football team money could buy. You I know, know. And, uh, the, Pony Express, uh, the Pony Express, the Pony Express, and then they gave you the death penalty oh, for something that now you can do legally. So I think you ought to advocate for the trustees up there to open up that big old you know endowment they got and just start. Man, they're the best because the unis are the best. I mean the the yeah. the red, white, and blue with the with the red pony on the yeah. side. Yeah. I'm not so sure what I think about the little new uh, helmet that says Dallas on it. Yeah, I yeah I agreed. Uh, that, that 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 worries me. Yeah, yeah, I don't like that one. I'd rather it just be either the SMU or the <laughs> SMU, pony. Yeah. yeah, or the pony on there you it. Go. But, yeah. Hey man, I really appreciate Don Meredith you. and all those great football players. Yeah. From, you know, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I really appreciate you and coming and spending time with us today. I think it's been very helpful and um, look forward to continuing our conversations around things mm -hmm. that won't have to do in the future with mm -hmm. division, but maybe more productive um, stuff. Yes, Although indeed. this was very productive for me yes, and very indeed. helpful. Thank you so much, Ted. Well, thank you. And thank you for what your congregation is doing and contributing. All right, buddy. Take Thanks. care. Blessings. Peace. You know what Bishop Huey told me one time that the word the most used word in the Methodist hymnal, which I thought was really interesting. He held that big boy up three times. Um, oh, yeah. Um, is the word we. That, that's the most frequently, after and and but and all the conjunctions, um, the most frequently used word in, in, is we. And I think we've sung that into ourselves. We've sung that over ourselves. That's in our theology. That's who we are. And so there's something about that that I think is important. You know, I, I, um, I love having conversations with, you know, to me, it is wrestling about this issue that I'm even still wrestling with. And to read in this Judicial Council um, ruling something that's been banging around in my heart for so long. And I may, I, and, and here, here's what's ironic. This is really silly. It's like, this stuff's been in there. It's like, I just can't grasp it. I know it's there. I know I love it, and whatever. And it's the freaking Judicial Council that puts it as articulately as like I've seen. It's beautiful. And it's, it's just devotional. like, it's more than simply a word in our shared vocabulary. Yes. Connectionalism, the universal thread out of which the temporal and spiritual fabric of the church is providentially woven. Tattoo. Wow. Right there, baby. I mean, That's... you know, I never thought I'd be inspired by wording in the <laughs> judicial council ruling, but I mean, who knows? So anyway, I think... <clears throat> the next step that a lot of of all of us should be together. I am an I've always been an, an advocate and a, um, a proponent of you know I want people to be where they feel like they need to be. Yeah. And if people feel like they don't need to be in the United Methodist Church, I want to do what I can to be helpful in that. Mm -hmm. it, it whatever I whatever I can do. I don't want anyone to leave. No. But if that's no. what they feel, and there's some way that I can be helpful. Uh, for people to get to where they need to go, then I, I, I want to be a part of that. I think that I've always said from the very beginning is that the way we go through this division is actually more important than the outcome of the division. Amen. 
Amen. The way we, the witness, Amen. the witness in the midst yeah. of this is, yeah. is more important yeah. than what the outcome is. That's right. That's right. Because the world is not only watching, the world needs a church that actually gives a damn about it, right? If God so loved the world, let's get back to that, which pulls us towards people that says, we're going to love people indiscriminately, and we're going to ask God to help us meet needs where we see them. And I think that if we can move beyond kind of this and say, okay, this is who we are. We are connectional. We are, this is who we are as a people. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. Well, I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Hello, neighbor, how are you? Really want to shower you with love. Hello, neighbor, how are you? Really want to challenge you to love.